0: This Tuesday will be the final session in our six-week study here at UUCF of Reproductive Justice, which is the new four-year congregational study action initiative for all Unitarian Universalist congregations. As some of you will recall from my sermon a few weeks ago, the term reproductive justice refers to the intersection between reproductive health and social justice. And on this Mother's Day Sunday, I'm reminded of one of the curriculum's suggested activities called Telling Your Story, Questions for Reflection. We took turns reading one question each from a list, and each individual was invited to pay attention to the question that resonated most with his or her life. Then we took time to listen to one another's stories. As I share some of those questions with you this morning, I invite you to notice which of these questions resonates most with you and your life story. There's a set of questions for parents and for what they term non-parents. You can decide whether you like that term or not. Um, For parents, some of the prompts were, did you intend to have children when you did? What factors influenced your decision to have a baby or keep the pregnancy? Did you have role models or other resources to help you raise your children? What major life events have impacted or are impacting your parenting and children? And what were the, what are or were the major challenges of parenting for you? Physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, sexual, social. For non-parents, the prompts were, do you want to have children? Why or why not? If you have actively decided not to have children, what factors influence or have influenced that decision? Do you have role models or resources to support your reproductive choices? And how is your life impacted by not having children? Physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, sexual, social. Now, although we don't have time this morning, the the same time we had in class, to listen to one another's stories, if one of those questions particularly resonated with you, I invite you to share your story with me or with one another at a future time. For now, I will share with you that for both me and for my wife, Megan, the most resonant of those questions is, do you want to have children? Said differently, the question is, do you want to become a father? Do you want to become a mother? I'm 35, Megan is 32. We moved through the season of weddings when we seem to be constantly attending weddings, marriage ceremonies for our friends, and we're well into what you could call the season of babies in which we're regularly attending baby showers and birthday parties for the children of friends and families. Indeed, this afternoon around 1220 or 1225, you're going to see me make a beeline for the parking lot because we have to go to the first year uh, birthday party of our the son of uh, Megan's cousin. But we do not feel that the time is right for us to start trying to have a baby ourselves. We both feel like we already have too much responsibility with our careers, which arguably is its own form of giving birth. But that balance may shift in the next few years. We'll see. In the meantime, Megan is asked at least weekly by friends, colleagues, or strangers if she has any kids. Not does she have a baby, but kids, older babies, and plural She's seen a marked increase in this question since she turned 30. Some of you may be able to relate. In contrast, a stranger has never come up to Megan to ask, so how many master's degrees do you have? Or how much of your writing have you published? Um, you can perhaps also guess that I'm asked the question, do you have kids, much less frequently. I get it occasionally, but I don't get it almost every single week, as she has for almost two years now, and very periodically before that. At the same time, I can't count the number of times that someone has warned me or Megan of the dangers of having kids after 35, as if this were news to us, that we'd never heard that before, at which point I'm told the dreaded words, advanced maternal age, are put in bold-faced on your medical chart. Uh, Yes. (laughs) All right. There is also, I'm told, though much less frequently, potential consequences to advanced paternal age. However, waiting to have children, waiting to become a mother or to become a father is part of how I was raised. I'm an only child. My mother was 37 when I was born. My father was 46. They had been married for eight years at the time. Although people would sometimes assume that my father was actually my grandfather, which was conceivably possible, um, I heard from my parents what I hear from many older parents, that they were likely more tired, than they would have been if they had had me 10 or 20 years earlier, but they also perceived themselves as likely more patient as parents than they would have been years earlier, as well as more financially stable than they had been years earlier. At the same time, my mother endured many years of being asked why she hadn't gotten married yet, and then why she hadn't had kids yet. One of the things she used to tell people was that, I haven't found a man who could treat me any better than I can treat myself. What I'm building to, though, is that as many of you have experienced personally, and perhaps different ways from the ways that I'm naming, this is just my story, and I'd be interested to hear yours at some point. But parenthood in general, and Mother's Day in particular, Ashley helpfully named some of this earlier, can be painful, or neutral, or celebratory, depending on one's history and one's circumstance. To again use Megan as an example, which be assured I have her permission to do, (laughs) Mother's Day is a complicated holiday for her, not only because we don't have children, but because her mother died when she was 21 after a long struggle with complications related to juvenile diabetes. I'm also reminded of my friends Adam and Sarah Walker-Cleveland. They're a few years younger than I am. Adam's the associate pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Ashland, Oregon. Sarah's a PhD candidate in spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Writing about his story, Adam says, I am the father of three, only one of whom is living. My wife and I were expecting twin boys until her water broke on October 4th, 24th, 2010. We were 19 weeks into our pregnancy. We had no choice other than to deliver our boys, and so Micah and Judah were born at 6.49 a.m. and 6.54 a.m. on Monday, October 25th. They were both alive when born, and we held them for a few hours before they passed away. On December 30th, 2011, we gave birth to our third son, Caleb Elijah, eight pounds, four ounces. We're deeply in love with him and are experiencing all the things you'd expect from the new parents of a newborn baby. As a way of processing the loss of their twins, Adam started a blog called Dazed Dad Reflections on Family fatherhood, loss, and grief. And one of the most important results of being so public about his grief process is that Adam has found many people have shared their story of reproductive loss with him. In many cases, stories that likely would not have been shared otherwise, and in some cases, stories that he's been told had never been told to anyone before. Adam writes that realizing what parenthood looks and feels like when you have lost children gave me a deeper appreciation for the fact that Mother's Day and Father's Day have a possibility of being horrible days for many people for all sorts of different reasons. As well as joyous days for all sorts of different reasons. Now, two Sunday afternoons ago, after leaving UUCF, I drove to Lewis, Delaware, for the Spring Kumo Retreat, which stands for Chesapeake Unitarian Universalist Ministerial Association. We love abbreviations in UU land. The, the focus of our retreat was better negotiating intercultural conflicts, so such as the different expectations that different cultural backgrounds have of, about whether, this is just one example, whether communication should be direct, or indirect, whether communication should be expressive or non-expressive. And one of the lessons that I took away from the retreat is the aphorism that intent does not always equal impact. To give one of many examples we explored, someone could come to you with a problem and be full of expressive emotion. And perhaps if your family background has trained you, though, to be indirect and non-expressive in all situations, then that emotion-filled person may not feel heard and appreciated and understood by you, even if he or she has your full attention. You may need to make yourself more expressive and direct just to make that person feel heard. Now, we spent a little more than two days um, exploring intercultural conflict in much more nuanced detail, but the important point for this morning is that increasing our awareness that in- intent does not always equal impact. And despite our best intentions, another person's experience of our words and actions may be radically different than our intent. And Mother's Day can be a classic example of intent not always equaling impact. But before proceeding, I should qualify again that if Mother's Day is one of your favorite times of year, please, by all means, continue celebrating in a way that is meaningful to you and your family. My desire is simply to expand the possibilities of how we can all make meaning out of Mother's Day. It's also fascinating to note that far beyond the contemporary complaints about the commercialization and problems of Mother's Day, historically speaking, there's been a gulf between the impact and the intent of Mother's Day from the very beginning. You heard some of that earlier from Doug. Some of the earliest roots of Mother's Day are from the late 19th century. My colleague of Stefan Johannesson has written that in 1872, Unitarian Julia Ward Howe began advocating the creation of a Mother's Day for Peace to be held on June 2nd of each year. The following year, 18 cities held such a gathering. Bostonians continued to observe the day for more than a decade while some cities continued the observance until the turn of the century when the annual Mother's Day for Peace appears to have died out. So not only did the original intent come, did not come to pass of Mother's Day as a lasting annual international days for peace, tied to mother's love of son across international boundaries, but we all know that the world would come to be racked in the next century by two world wars, in addition to many other battles and conflict. An even more striking disjunction between intent and impact happened with the next attempt to found Mother's Day, the one that has continued to today. In 1907, Anna Jarvis, a Methodist, began a campaign to establish a permanent Mother's Day. By the, the, and she always denied that it had anything to do with um, Howell's previous attempt. So, but setting that aside, by the following year, y- the YMCA had taken up the cause, and in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a congressional resolution establishing Mother's Day in the United States. In time, the day came to be marked in many other countries. But Jarvis was troubled by the commercialization of the day, saying, I wanted it to be a day of sentiment, not profit. Inalterably opposed to the sale of flowers, but not the the giving of homegrown blossoms, she also lamented the advent of Mother's Day cards, describing it as a poor excuse for the letter you are too lazy to write. That's ouch, right? (laughs) So... So Anne Jarvis, the mother of Mother's Day, so to speak, was distraught at uh, and spent the rest of her life campaigning against what Hallmark, I mean, it's really not just Hallmark, but what Hallmark and others have made of her holiday. So for all of you who have ever felt disillusioned with Mother's Day for whatever reason, consider yourself in distinguished company. But to turn our attention back to the present, I want to share with you a related sentiment by a blogger named Chanel Matthews from her essay, Mother's Day for the Rest of Us. She writes, I dread it. That uncomfortable, anticlimactic moment when I enter the drugstore and begin to comb through their dismal shelves for a Mother's Day card. I listlessly pace the aisles looking for a sentiment that speaks to me, one that fits the unique experiences I share with my mom. Like the year before, I'm underwhelmed with the choices no brown faces. No candid, raw emotions that illustrate the complexity of our relationship. No culturally relevant jokes to make us laugh. I rummage through the picked-over ones, the paisley prints. I'm desperate for something, not just for my mom, but for the millions of moms who don't fit. If Mother's Day is about celebrating motherhood, don't queer moms and immigrant moms, moms of children with disabilities and moms with disabilities, don't they deserve to be celebrated? If Mother's Day emphasizes the importance of the maternal bond, don't genderqueer moms and adopted moms, foster moms, trans moms, grandmas parenting grandkids and single moms also experience that same maternal bond? If the purpose of Mother's Day is to highlight the influence of mothers, aren't stepmoms, incarcerated moms, young moms, refugee moms, low-income moms, and moms living on sovereign land also influential on their children? It's not news that greeting card companies aren't in the business of celebrating the marginalized. After all, who wants to read a greeting card that says, Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I'm sorry you got deported. <laughs> but whether they highlight our stories or not, we exist. And the, mothers, and the mothers whose lives are not being reflected on greeting cards, they're in need of something that can't be delivered, that can't be worn, and that can't be eaten. They need policies, policies that accurately reflect the reality of their daily mothering lives. They need affordable health care, they need citizenship, they need access to healthy foods, to transportation, birth control, self-care time, and support. They need second parent adoption minus the red tape. They need safe spaces from domestic abusers. They need visitation rights, affordable, safe housing, culturally relevant education in languages their families understand. They need less shaming and more policies in place that make it safe and secure to be the kind of moms they know they need to be for their children. I've taken the time to share that that excerpt of Chanel Matthews' words with you this morning because she captures some of the same spirit as our Unitarian foremother, Julia Ward Howe, that she did more than a century ago in her call for an International Mother's Day of Peace. My hope this morning has been to open up the possibilities for what Mother's Day can and should mean today and in years to come. And this focus on the diversity of what Mother's Day at its best must entail is also why I scheduled Flower Communion on Mother's Day this year. Now, I'm open to suggestions about when to schedule flower communion in the future, although my current inclination is to schedule it around the same time as the D.C. Cherry Blossom Festival. I figure, let the National Park Service figure out when the flowers are going to bloom, and so we don't have to worry about it. But for this morning, the intent is for the diversity of these flowers before us, in part to symbolize the diversity of what motherhood and mothering means. But beyond that symbolism for Mother's Day, flower communion always means the diversity more broadly of the unique gifts that each of us freely choose to bring to this congregation.